You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 11 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Ever since 2016, the question has been, how did the public opinion polls miss so much support for Donald Trump? Well, fast forward to 2020, and what many forecasters had seen as a blowout win for Joe Biden turned out to be another nail-biter. projected flip of U.S. Senate control from red to blue apparently didn't happen, and the polls were way off in some of the states, including Texas, Florida, and even Wisconsin. Joining me to try to explain what is going on with polling is our resident expert, Craig Helmstetter. He's a managing partner at the APM Research Lab. And if you have a question about polling for the next 25 minutes or so, give us a call. 651-227-6000 is the number. 651-227-6000. Craig Helmstetter, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Now, the explanation in 2016, as I recall is that the national polls actually did pretty well on the popular vote, but the state polls missed pretty badly and didn't catch the electoral college nuances. Is that about right? And then how do you explain 2020? Uh, Yeah, that that was a a good representation of what went on in what we think went on in 2016. And as far as what has gone on in this election cycle, um, uh, I, I will uh, say that uh, I am a member of the American Association for Public Opinion Research, but uh, I obviously don't speak to them because that group of researchers, which includes uh, pollsters from around the nation, has already issued a statement that said, hey, wait a minute, the, the election's not even over yet. It's maybe too soon to do, uh-huh. to do a postmortem on this election. Uh, but uh, despite that, you know, I don't speak for uh, APOR, as that association is called, because I already have issued a very, very preliminary postmortem. We just posted it on the APM Research Lab website this morning. Okay, I thought and, you were gonna. I uh, thought you were gonna say you were out on the front lawn burning your membership card. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. I, I am. I am actually serve on the uh, transparency initiative committee there, trying to make sure that people are very transparent in the way that they conduct surveys. And so I'm really uh, very well aligned. But they do make a good point that hey, it's a little early to uh, tell the history of this just yet. Um, but at the same time, what what I'm seeing so far in the presidential polling that I that I took a look at hmm. is that, it, you know, in most cases, the presidential polling, the direction of who is going to win the race, it it appears uh, right now that, that Biden has the edge and, and nationally and it, but and definitely in the uh, popular vote, uh, he has the edge. Hmm. And that that is what the national polls suggested. Um, and mo- many of the state level polls also, you know, kind of accurately predicted the outcome uh, where we get into trouble, I think, is the, the magnitude of, of that margin in many states. You mentioned Florida, for example, the, mm-hmm. the you know, the magnitude of the prediction and in that case, even the direction of the prediction is way off. Yeah, um, I, I get that the election is still going on and and there's a lot of counting to do. Um could it be uh, on the popular vote that a big state like California throws things off so much that the electoral votes or some of the other states don't come into line with it and that sort of throws off the polling averages? 
Uh, well, I, I think the, the people who do, you know, polling averages and try to forecast how the election is going to turn out based on, on uh, you know, state level polls, I think they're a little bit more sophisticated than that. And so I don't think, no, that that states like California do sway things. I think that um, what happens is just that there are, you know, it, it is not an easy task to predict uh, who is going to vote for whom. And, you know, underneath that, it's even a more tricky task to predict who actually is going to be voting. Hmm. And so, you know, that is a tricky task uh, in any year uh, to correctly identify what we call the universe that we're trying to poll, you know, who's going to actually vote. That's tricky. This year, uh, you know, we have this pandemic, so that's doubly tricky. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's a a pretty uh, tall task for pollsters to line up with to make the predictions this year. Now, I I, uh, get the fact that there can be outliers in polls, and that's why the experts have been saying to use the averages. So when that Washington Post poll came out a week before the election and showed uh, Joe Biden up by 17 in Wisconsin, you can kind of discount that, right? It's it's a it's bad poll, but uh, I think the polling average had him up by about seven points in Wisconsin, and the actual result looks like uh, Biden won Wisconsin by less than one percent, twenty thousand votes or so, and uh, it also looks like President Trump outperformed the polling averages in many many other states. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, well, uh, as as you mentioned, we saw this same thing uh, play out in 2016, where, um, you know, polls, many state level polls uh, underestimated support for um, Donald Trump. And at that time, the association that I belong to did do a, a rigorous uh post analysis of what happened. And and they found that one of the real keys was that uh, people who lack college educations were underrepresented in the polls. So people who lack college educations tend tend to favor Trump and they were not adequately uh, picked up or weighted properly uh, in the polling that was done. So, you know, hopefully uh, pollsters will have learned that lesson from 2016 and adequately applied those weights this time around. Um, but I guess the jury's still out as to whether that happened uh, or if there's some other similar type, um, you know, wrench in the machine that kind of uh, led us to underrepresent the Trump support this year. Uh, time mm. will tell, but we do see that that pattern is very familiar. Yeah, I thought a lot of the pollsters had talked about adjusting their uh, expectations for those uh, non-college educated voters this time. Yeah, definitely that w- that was the case. Some, some people, you know, some pollsters said, "Hey, I've always done it without waiting for education, and my results historically have been okay, so I don't need to this time around." Uh, uh, but uh, by and large, I think the industry really took note of that finding and and did adjust their methods. So uh, maybe there's some dynamic with the uh, with the pandemic. Uh, you know, there's this there is this theory out there of the so-called shy Trump voter who will mm. vote for uh, uh, Trump, even though they won't tell a survey interviewer that they're interested in, in Trump. And uh, that uh, there's not a ton of evidence for that. This is subject of some debate among survey researchers. Some of that may be happening. 
Um, but we really think that in the past, at least, what has happened is that that lack of accounting for college for those with less than college education um, has, you know, underrepresented uh, the uh, support for Trump. Talking with Craig Helmstetter, he's managing partner at the APM Research Lab, uh, and and he makes a very fair point that the votes are still being counted. But we are trying to look a little bit about at the public polls and just what happened before this election, because at least right now, it looks like they were off again, uh, just as they were, as many people complained in 2016. Uh, Let's take a caller. Chad is on the line from Minneapolis. Hi, Chad. Go ahead. Hello. I understand that campaigns, media organizations, and even academics have uses for accurate polls. But what am I, just the average voter, supposed to do with any of that information, Uh, even assuming it were accurate, which I think it's fair to say we cannot make that assumption now? Mm -hmm. Good question. Uh, What what value do you think polls have for the general public, Craig? Well, um, very broadly speaking, uh, you know, polls serve as the voice of of the people. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy... Uh, for um, us as individuals to talk with others and find out about their opinions. But what does the broad public think? You know, so that's a very, a very broad uh, answer to that question. A narrower one when it comes to uh, public opinion polling is, well, uh, for example, if, if I would like to make a campaign contribution uh, to su- support uh, some kind of policy difference that I think a political candidate is going to promote during an election, um, I'm a, a poll result may be useful to me. Maybe I want to uh, make my contributions to um, candidates who appear to be to have a chance to win. Maybe they're just just behind in the polls, but with a little extra help, they could they could get ahead. And maybe I don't want to sort of waste my money on a candidate that does not have a chance of winning. And without polls, we kind of don't have. Uh, the, an easy way to make uh, make those grounds. There are many other reasons people could contribute to different candidates, but but that's one way that polls could help an individual citizen. And I will say uh, we at NPR News uh, did some polling this year with the Star Tribune and uh, CARE 11. And uh, the way we tried to use the polls was to uh, connect us with voters because we got, uh, as we did the polls, we got lists of the people who talked to the pollsters and contact information. So our reporters then went back to those folks and tried to get behind uh, why they were voting or why they were supporting the candidate they did. So we were trying to tell a story with the polls. Um, And actually, uh, I don't know if you took a look at it, Craig, but I think our poll, uh, it was done by Mason-Dixon polling, uh, was pretty good. I, I think it had uh, about a five-point uh, margin between uh, Biden and Trump with Biden up. And I think the final result, I haven't checked this morning, but I think it's in the seven- or eight-point range. So I don't know. It was close. And, and of course, the right. Po- yeah. And that, that, you know, that poll, that was a, you know, a snapshot and where Minnesota's opinions were back in September. And you're right. Um even though that that happened in late September, uh, the results from that poll, uh, you know, the the results of the actual uh, vote are well within the margins of error uh, around the um, results from from that uh, Star Tribune, Care 11, NPR, Minnesota poll, both for um, uh, for Smith and uh, the Smith 
Tina Smith. Uh, and Lewis Senate mm-hmm. race, as well as um, the uh, presidential race. Actually, on the presidential side, um, the, uh, the Minnesota, Minnesota poll actually underestimated Biden support for Biden in Minnesota a little bit uh, more than it underestimated support for Trump. So that was sort of a difference from kind of the national trend where uh, Trump support was underestimated here in Minnesota. Uh, at least with this Minnesota poll, that that support for Biden was a little bit uh, underrepresented, at least, again, in late September when that poll was conducted. And, and is that how you look at the polls? Do you look more at the uh, the number uh, for the support a particular candidate is is drawing than the gap between the two? Well, it's, it's, it is, you know, you look at both. It's, it's easiest to kind of uh, summarize things by looking at the uh, uh, you know, the vote margin, uh, mm. just that percentage, you know, the five points that you, that you mentioned. But, uh, yeah, if you really want to get into the details and uh, on this uh, pr- preliminary postmortem that we just put up on the APM Research Lab website, I show the actual support for um, Biden and the support for Trump. And then I put margins of error. You know, any given poll result is actually best thought of as um as a range. Uh, so, for example, a, a recent uh, national poll of support for, uh, you know, that asked people who they're going to vote for, um, the range of we, we think that the likely outcome, if we were able to survey all Americans, would have been somewhere between 48.8% and 55.2% would have um, supported uh, Biden. So, uh, you know, it's it's best to think of things you know, in terms of the, the support for the candidate and then even a, a range of outcomes. But as you can see, because I'm talking so long, it's much easier to boil things down to a simple percentage point margin. Uh, but that's actually where we sometimes get in trouble by simplifying things a little bit uh, too much. So you lose the uh, sort of the nuance of, of what the survey is actually telling you. Hmm. OK, uh, let's take another caller, uh, Evan, on the line in Minneapolis. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is with regards to voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression efforts. I think when we're looking at the difference between polling and what the uh, ultimate vote turnout looks like and trying to unpack what dissonance there is, it's always good to look at ways that the vote has been suppressed or diminished. Just take the case of Florida. We know 75,000 formerly incarcerated people were granted the right to vote, and then Republicans in the state took that away. It's anyone's guess, ultimately, whether voter suppression and disenfranchisement ultimately helps one party or the other. But I think if you really ask Republicans in Florida and Democrats in Florida, they would both agree that it, it this tends to uh, bolster Republican turnout and suppress Democratic turnout. It's different for every state, but just to take Florida by one example, if we're trying to play a little Monday morning quarterback and scratch our heads about what what explains the difference? It, it feels like a conversation that doesn't acknowledge consistent efforts to suppress and 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 uh, and, 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 and disenfranchise people all over the country uh, need to be factored in. Okay, well, uh, good observation. Thanks for that, uh, Craig. I guess this gets a little to the point you made earlier about uh, finding that likely universe of voters, and uh, I wonder if polls do take into account. Um, efforts to keep people or groups of people from voting? 
you know, th- th- I think that was a really excellent point. And uh, no, I mean, really, in, in the uh, in the polls, uh, they oftentimes uh, they're working off of lists of registered voters, which can be problematic because, you know, there's in Minnesota, for example, there's same day registration. So uh, we can miss people who register late. Um, not all polls rely on those lists, but some some do. Um but uh, but we also identify likely voters, of course, by simply asking them how likely is it for you to uh, vote on Election Day and then, you know, waiting those answers according to if people say extremely likely they're in. If they say very likely, maybe they're given a little less weight. But but we do not ask a question about uh, uh, that goes into likely voter models, at least. And we do we do not ask questions about how likely is it that you want to vote, but you will be intimidated or you will be, you know, somehow prevented from uh, casting your ballot. That's a little uh, more difficult to get at. Uh, and I think that's that's an excellent uh, point. And it'll be interesting to see if that does uh, come out to play in, in the further analyses of, of uh, how polling compares to the actual vote result. Uh, you brought up this notion earlier about uh, the shy Trump voter. Um, I'm uh, just looking at the uh, popular vote right now, and it looks like, and it's going to change because there are a lot of votes still being counted, um, in, in, in a, including in some of these states that aren't battlegrounds and you're not really hearing much about. But um, Donald Trump right now has about 48% of the popular vote. And uh, I think it's fair to say that his vote totals were higher than expected in some states. Um, so if it's not the shy Trump voter, might there be another explanation? Might it be the angry Trump voter who uh, hears the president constantly criticizing the media and gets a call from a pollster and says, I'm just not going to take part? Yeah, yeah, good question. And, and uh you know, I'm a big enough nerd that uh, just this morning when I was out uh, w- walking my dog, I was listening to a podcast about polling, <laughs> and they were talking about, uh, now, now this gets kind of meta, but they were talking about some polling, about polling itself. What do you think of, about political polls? Do you trust political polls and so on? Uh, that those questions were asked in a national survey and that, indeed, Republicans, they found to be somewhat more um, distrustful and disliking of polls even <laughs> than the rest of the American public at this point. So it, it may indeed be the case that, that uh, yeah, well, well the, the shy Trump voter may or may not exist. Yeah, there may be a resistant <laughs> Trump voter who is indeed sort of angry at the poll. Now, I think this is kind of a marginal, small uh, smaller difference, but uh, but in a in a more extensive post uh, you know post mortem as to come, that may be a definite factor in all of this. Hmm. Uh, let's uh, take another caller, Glenn, in Minneapolis. Good morning. My memory of the 2016 polls is that they largely missed the fact that the Rust Belt states were going to break towards Trump. Numbers aside, this year have the state polls been accurate, more accurate in terms of projecting who uh, who would win those states? Good question. Good question. And I, and I you know, I did in my look at the polls, I, I was looking at uh, kind of the 15 uh, states that we had at the APM Research Lab had early on identified as, as battleground or swing states. And many of those 
kind of Rust Belt states fell in there, Michigan, uh, if you want to include Wisconsin, Ohio, for example, Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of mixed um, state to state. Uh, Mike already mentioned that the polls were off by a fair amount. Uh, you know, I don't know if you consider Wisconsin the, the Rust Belt, but they were off by a fair amount there. Ohio, uh, they were off as, as well. I think... Um, I think it's too early to say that they were, you know, that that was as consistent a flaw across the Rust Belt as it was in 2016. But it's uh, definitely I can't say that there is a resounding uh, repair of polling across the Rust Belt and that it all was golden and and great as a result of what we learned in 2016. So um, there definitely were some weak spots in there. That's a great question. And uh, the president uh, last night uh, lashed out. He called the polls suppression polls. He said the polls were biased. The polls were out to get him. Are the pollsters biased against uh, the president in particular and against certain candidates? No. Uh, that, uh, you know, a uh, uh, pollsters, survey researchers, you know, make their living on trying to get these numbers right. And I'm sure none of them are enjoying the the uh, what, what's going on right now from the president or, or anyone else with, with the questioning. So really, you know, the whole business model is staked on getting the um, getting the or the right answer. If, even if you're working for a political campaign, you don't have an interest in you know, kind of biasing or fudging the results so that uh, your candidate looks like they're stronger than they are, that might, you know, cause them to uh, relax in an area of the country where they should instead be, you know, putting in more effort. So uh, even uh, political uh, polls that are done by uh, campaigns have a vested interest in in being very accurate. And in, interestingly, uh, one of the highest quality kind of decision desks and polling outfits uh, in the country is is associated with Fox News. You know, their editorial side obviously has a strong balance, but uh, their sort of analytic side, um, you know, they, they make their uh, claims on, on showing accurate numbers. So, uh, you know, we, we all as humans have biases, I suppose, but uh, not the sort of nefarious intentional uh, biases that some people uh, sort of accuse uh, pollsters of having. I have to say, too, one of the uh, trends in journalism I'm not uh, particularly wild about are these data analysts who who make their projections, Nate Silver and Nate Cohen. Um, that seems to, to be betting on the outcome of the race or, or trying to predict it more than I think I'm comfortable with and I, I would expect more than, than somebody like you is comfortable with. <laughs> well, you know, I, I already uh, uh, exposed myself as a data nerd, and so, uh, so so that that side of me, you know, I love to look at the numbers and look at at the analysis, and and I do actually think that it provides a really nice complement to the sort of shoe leather, more traditional reporting where you're talk out in the community, talking to people, looking at lawn signs, and so on. Um, so I think I think there's definitely a place for it. I think that you know. Uh, things get often misunderstood. So I think there are a couple things to keep in mind. One, one is that um, the predictions that are made by the likes of Nate Cohen and Nate Silver, uh, those are typically, you know, probabilistic. And it's hard for us all to wrap our heads around probabilities. But, but you know, so the 538 prediction was that Trump had 
only a one in 10 chance of winning, but you know, that's still a one in 10 chance of winning. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's not often understood. And, and, and we did, (laughs) you know, those predictors, what they do is aggregate polls and add some math and insight and come up with uh, their forecasts. Well, what we, what we did at APM research lab was sort of aggregated uh, the forecasters. So we, we took a look at not only uh, 538, but we also looked at uh, something called um, the crystal ball out of the uh, uh, University of Virginia. We looked at real clear politics, political, CNN, The Economist, and the Cook, Cook Political Report. And we just tracked all the races in Minnesota. So we, in effect, tracked 71 Minnesota-specific predictions and out of all those uh, Minnesota specific predictions, we only uh, only two of them were off. So, hmm. you know, they don't always get things right on the national level, but there is some some value and some interesting and some complement to, to tr- more traditional forms of journalism there. All right, Craig, I'm going to let you go. But let me ask you one last question. Uh, can the polling industry recover from this? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the the Atlantic already p- uh, posted an article by David Graham that said, you know, this is a catastrophe and the polling industry may not have its purpose anymore. Uh, but I will say, uh, I, I think it's way too early to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, um, sp- especially for survey research that's done outside of uh, the political season when you're just trying to get at Americans' uh, policy preferences. Um, I think those surveys continue to be very valuable. You know, where else are you going to be able to tap what the pulse of all of America and what they think about uh, gun policy or health care policy or other things? And in those cases, you don't have that tricky denominator problem of trying to um, identify likely voters. So it's, it's a little bit less uh, problematic of, of an issue there. So, no, don't throw the baby out with a bathwater yet. I think, you know, this is a pandemic year that uh, is is uh, particularly difficult for a wide variety of reasons, including its impact on polling. All right, Craig Helmstetter, thanks so much. He's the managing partner of the APM Research Lab. It's always good to talk with you, Craig. Thanks again. Thank you, Mike. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. For the rest of the hour, we're going to go back over this historic election week in Minnesota to talk about what we know and what we don't know and what might be coming next. To help, I'm joined by two Minnesota journalists who have been covering the campaign. Tim Pugmire is on our NPR News politics team. He covered the campaign and keeps an eye on the legislature. And our friend Brianna Biersbach is here. She's an NPR News and MinPost alum who now covers politics for the Star Tribune. Thanks to both of you for coming on. And uh, Brianna, you and your colleagues at the paper have done a great job this year. I have to start with that. Um, But let's look at the presidential race in Minnesota. President Trump almost won the state four years ago, came within a point and a half, 45,000 votes. This time, he uh, lost uh, pretty good. He uh, trailed Joe Biden by, I think, nearly eight points. How do you explain what happened this year as compared to four years ago? Well, you know, when we look back at four years ago, I think a a lot of people, the state's long streak of voting for Democratic candidates, you know, they haven't voted for Republicans since Richard Nixon in 1972. Uh, Donald Trump's close 
margin just within 1.5 percentage points really shocked a lot of people. There was a lot of soul searching in the Democratic Party about how that could have happened. And and really what they found out is he didn't um, necessarily dramatically outperform other Republican candidates in past presidential elections. But he uh, Hillary Clinton did underperform um, Obama in, in the previous two elections. So what we you know, the polls showed all along that Joe Biden was leading Trump in Minnesota. But, you know, he campaigned here four times. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, if I had done one more rally in of one, and he really put that theory to the test. He was here four times in the final stretch of the campaign, um, but it ultimately wasn't enough, um, and that's because Joe Biden outperformed um, Clinton four years ago. You know, he um, managed to hold on um, and, and, and really turn out a lot of voters in, in the metro area, which is where we saw a huge surge um, that helped him uh, win the state on its own, but he also did better in a lot of counties that Clinton lost. So he turned some um, greater Minnesota counties that she had lost and also in increased his margins in the metropolitan area, which uh, really, you know, allowed him to do so well uh, the state for Minnesota or Mm. Trump for Minnesota. Mm. It's interesting. I was looking at the votes the other day and uh, Donald Trump actually outperformed his uh, 2016 uh, numbers here in Minnesota by more than 100,000 votes, I think. But uh, Joe Biden outperformed Hillary Clinton by more than 300,000 votes, I think, if I, have, if I remember the numbers correctly. And my brain is not working too rapidly today, I have to warn you. Uh, Tim Pugmire, what were the big issues out there as you talked to people over the course of the campaign? Well, Mike, first of all, I just need to say, what a delight to have Brianna on the radio again. Yes, that's true. I mean, it, this is good stuff. Um, the issues people were talking about, Republicans to a person talking about law and order issues, about the rioting in Minneapolis, about uh, 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 the notion of defunding the police. And, and those were candidates, and they were sticking with folks, uh, the voters, Republican voters, uh, Democrats really focusing on COVID uh, and its impact on the economy, its impact on schools, uh, and just the general uh, state response to COVID-19, keeping people uh, healthy and safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, traditional issues like K-12 education, other than uh, its implications with COVID-19, really wasn't the kind of issue it normally is. Uh, Same with many other issues up and down the list. Tim, do you think that law and order issue uh, helped Republicans? Because when you look at uh, the legislative results, uh, it looks as if, and you can give us the latest results, but it looks as if the uh, Republicans are going to keep control of the state Senate by at least one uh, vote, right? Yeah, things uh, if things stand the way they are. We'd have a, a 34-33 Senate and a 70-64 House. Uh, both uh, both the same majorities as before, but narrower margins. Um, so things are going to be interesting just in terms of logistics with those numbers, if they hold and... and uh, we should emphasize that the, the counting continues here. Right. There are still these uh, absentee ballots coming in until uh, next Tuesday, as long as they're um, 
as long as they're postmarked by election day, uh, they're going to be added to the count, although they're, they're also being segregated and could be subtracted from the count at some point, depending on litigation. Uh, Brianna, uh, what difference might that make for some of the, the state uh, races, not the federal races, because it looks like uh, president and U.S. Senate are pretty much decided, but uh, could some of these legislative races uh, yet flip if, if more of the absentee ballots come in? Um, yes, yeah, certainly. That looks like the case. I mean, we're seeing some races in the state house um, and, and Senate being the difference being just a few hundred, even less than 100 votes in some cases. Uh, so that could potentially change the results. We've had some um, races kind of out in southern Minnesota uh, that we were waiting on results to be called now um, in the last day or so. But there's still a really competitive race um, in, in the Iron Range where the Democrat incumbent is just barely ahead of Republican challenger there. Um, that could potentially be decided by, you know, just the tens of votes, um, which we've seen in, in Minnesota in the past. Um, and, and same with some other races out in, in other parts of the state. We have a few close races in Rochester. Um, there's an outstanding race in uh, the Maple Grove suburban area where, um, you know, the Republican incumbent Warren Limmer is hanging on, but, you know, that, that hasn't been called yet. Um, and that's because some of these ballots are, are coming in. That one might be a little bit harder um, for the Democrats to overcome. Um, but definitely, I think that, you know, these, these ballots will be important uh, depending on what the, you know, the courts ultimately decide to do. Tim, why do you think that the balance of power in the legislature didn't shift? Was it because Trump was able to turn out more voters than a typical Republican candidate? I think that's right. And that really helped uh, Republicans uh, in the House and Senate to to defend some of these districts, because uh, we heard over and over from Democrats how they were targeting all these suburban districts, several rural districts, um, in the Senate, the, the DFL was going hard after Rochester, uh, trying to knock off incumbents. And uh, in just about every case, in most cases, uh, the Senate Republicans were able to play defense. Uh, House uh, Republicans were able to play defense in a lot of uh, key races as well. And uh, I, I think that's the big Trump number that helped. Mm. Talking to Tim Pugmire, NPR News political reporter, and Brianna Biersbach, who covers politics for the Star Tribune. Tim, it was those, such... Uh, uh, go ahead. Mike, Mike those races that uh, Brianna mentioned, uh, Senate District 14 in St. Cloud, EFL uh, Eric Putnam, is holding a 321-vote lead over incumbent Republican Jerry Ralph. And in the House, uh, all the attention, as she mentioned, is on District 6A. That's where DFL incumbent Julie Sandstead is holding a narrow 60-vote lead over Republican Robert Farnsworth. Uh, 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 Sandstead had been down 47 votes just a couple of days ago and has... uh, has uh, uh, gotten up to 50 in, on the plus side. Of course, there's going to be uh, recounts in these districts for mm-hmm. sure and uh, in several others, yeah. I imagine, as well. So not just those absentee ballots that yet to have come in, but uh, recounts, automatic recounts. That's uh, right. Um, it was such an odd year, given the pandemic. Do you think 
the decision by many of the DFL candidates not to do in-person campaigning may have hurt them? Because I know a lot of Republicans were out doing the typical door knocking and things like that. Brianna, what do you think? Well, that's certainly, yeah, that's certainly something that um, Republicans are arguing right now. And I know that there were some Democrats um, during the campaign who are losing sleep over this because the, the Democratic Party in Minnesota does traditionally have a really good get out the vote effort. They've really, you know, despite sort of, um, you know, new advancements in digital campaigning and all these things, they've always maintained that piece that they've said is so critical um, to the party's essence here, which is that uh, person-to-person contact. You know, it helped them win really critical campaigns in the, pla- in the past. Um, you look at the um, gay marriage um, constitutional amendment vote, which was defeated historically in 2012. That was a really on-the-ground campaign that Democrats have always done. And I know some are really uncomfortable that they couldn't do as much here. And, and some have said, you know, in some of these really tight races, that could have been the difference, right? you know, 50, 60, a few hundred voters that you could have maybe connected with and changed their mind with that old fashioned retail politic type persuasion. Um, and it's, it's worth noting as well, uh, this result in Minnesota, the sort of status quo that we're, we're probably looking at here um, is actually what happened across the, the country in legislatures. The National Conference of State Legislatures is saying this election was historic and how little actually changed in these legislative cha- chamber controls across the country. And it looks like Minnesota is once again the only two-party or two-chamber legislature that it will again be split going into the next uh, budgeting and, and other debates. Hmm. Mike, on the doorknock, it, it, it appeared early in the campaign, in the summer and and early fall that uh, DFL candidates were very uh, sticking very uniformly to that standard of uh, doing doing primarily phone calls, and there were a lot of these uh, uh, small events with voters at parks where people would uh, socially distance and hear from the candidate. Uh, but as we got closer to, to election day, uh, it we started to see a lot of DFLers uh, kind of go back to the uh, normal routine. Uh, maybe folks were getting a little nervous, but there were some breakoffs uh, on that door knocking uh, late in the campaign. Uh, I asked Speaker uh, Melissa Hortman about it, and she said she didn't regret the decision to keep people off the doors and said it was the best way to keep Minnesotans safe and healthy. And what about the uh, third-party legal marijuana candidates? Um, Brianna, you've looked into this a bit. What, what kind of impact do you think they had on some of these local races and on some of the congressional races? Right. You know, it's it's so hard to say for sure, right, because we can't be, you know, inside voters' heads saying, you know, if you weren't going to vote for this candidate, who would you have voted for, right? Um, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, they're pretty close in changing margins in some of these districts, but this is something that the Democratic Party had been um, talking about all along. You know, they had done some research after campaign fi- filings in June um, to see who some of these candidates were. They had found a number of them um, in, in districts, in swing districts, specifically around the state that, you know, did have a history of conservative social media posts or some potentially had ties to operatives, uh, Republican operatives in the Senate. So there was, you know, certainly a lot of allegations flying around that these were specifically planted in some districts 
to siphon off votes from Democrats who are, you know, more on the record or are on the record um, in a lot of cases as supporting legalized recreational marijuana. Uh, but, you know, and, and one kind of most high profile case was Adam Weeks in the second congressional district who um, we did obtain a voicemail uh, after he had unexpectedly died in September um, from a friend where he told him and that he was specifically recruited by um, Republicans um, to, to run against Angie Craig and pull off votes. Now, there could be a few races where potentially uh, there might be evidence that uh, the third party candidate actually maybe pulled some votes away from conservatives who are already doing really well in that race. Um, we'll never know for sure, but um, it's really making Democrats reevaluate a lot of things right now. They probably can't push full legalization, um, a recreational marijuana because of likely divided control in Minnesota, but they, um, you know, they really have to look at how they address it and talk about it to voters if they don't want to have a repeat situation of this in a few years. Tim, I would think the last thing the Republicans would want to do in the Senate would be to pass a a legal marijuana bill. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 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 Majority Leader Paul Gazelka made that clear all uh, last, last year. But that was not something they were interested in doing, and uh, uh, we can assume that he, that he has not changed his mind on that. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, given some of these totals, the legal marijuana now candidate up in St. Cloud has more than 3,000 votes, and it, it, it's probably safe to say that Eric Putnam would probably have a, a, a little bit bigger lead, uh, if not for the, uh, those votes. Um, also, the outcome in Austin, where it looks uh, as though incumbent DFL Dan Sparks was defeated in the, the Senate seat there, uh, he might have lost some votes to the uh, marijuana candidate there who, who took in 2,600 votes so far. Hmm. Hard to say in retrospect, but but it does look like it was a factor. Um, I want to get I want to uh, get back to the legislative issues in a minute, but uh, just touch on the congressional races because most of the incumbent members of Congress uh, won re-election, some of them to just a second term, with the notable exception of the longest-serving member from Minnesota, DFLer Colin Peterson from Western Minnesota. Um, he had been there almost thirty years. Uh, Brianna, I know you. You uh, did a profile of uh, Peterson. Uh, What do you think? Why did the Republicans finally knock him off this time? Yeah, I mean, it it was, you know, a lot of polling showed, or at least internal polling that we had heard heard about showed that he was really vulnerable. Um, But he had been, you know, potentially in a vulnerable position before. and He managed to stave off challenges, um, you know, because of his conservative positions. Um, You know, he voted against impeachment. He's, um, you know, an anti-abortion Democrat. He has an A rating from the NRA, one of the only Democrats, so the only Democrat in the House left. Uh, But, you know, before in his previous elections, he really faced off against challengers who had little name recognition in the district. Um, And national Republicans had a few times tried to take him out, but it didn't put in the investment that they did this year. I think we're going to see when the final totals are in in terms of outside spending in this race that this one had the most um, spending from outside groups and probably likely more from Republicans than any other congressional race in the state. So they really did put the effort in this time um, to to do what a lot of folks are saying is is really a realignment um, that that could have and maybe would have happened a long time ago if Colin 
Peterson hadn't been in the seat, that this district went 30 points for Trump both in 2016 and this year um, and has a lot of conservative voters. And it was likely to go to Republican either this year or as soon as he you know, potentially retired, which he had been talking about for a long time. But it is, um, you know, a, a big loss for House Democrats. You know, he was their chairman of the Agriculture Committee. The 7th District is, is, of course, the largest producer in the nation of sugar beets. He was called the godfather of the sugar beet industry. He had a lot of no, he had a lot of skill and a lot of know-how um, in that area in particular that, you know, he had talked a lot about on the campaign trail. The district will, will lose if he if he loses. Mm-hmm. And Tim, uh, what do you think his legacy will be? You uh, You covered his early campaigns, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. Uh, This is reminding me of uh, just how old I am, because Peterson was first elected to Congress uh, the same year I started at NPR at our station in Collegeville in 1990. Uh, St. Cloud was in the 7th District back then, and uh, he beat our Republican Arlen Stanglin, and I actually covered him in earlier elections because he, uh, he tried for that seat unsuccessfully several times before his ultimate victory uh that was in my pre-mpr days uh but uh when you were just uh, a baby still when i was just a baby but uh in terms of longevity man he was there a long time yeah he was he was and uh it it does uh as you mentioned brianna kind of uh, uh cement this realignment we've been seeing rural minnesota Pretty much represented by Republicans in Congress now. Uh, Pete Stauber won a second term in the 8th District. Um, Michelle Fishbach now in the western Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota. Jim Hagedorn won his second term in uh, southern Minnesota. And, of course, Tom Emmer, who's a, a powerful uh, member of Congress uh, from central Minnesota. And the Democrats now have the central cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and the suburbs, with Angie Craig winning a second term in the southern suburbs and Dean Phillips uh, winning a second term in the western suburbs. So uh, that's changed. I mean, that that has really changed. Those uh, suburban seats used to be pretty solidly Republican, and the some of the rural seats used to be pretty solidly Democrat. That's right. And, you know, we'll have to see what happens after the redistricting process that comes up in a few years. You know, we still don't know, based on the census, if Minnesota is going to maintain all eight of those seats or if they're going to possibly lose a seat. Um, but either way, uh, there's going to be some realignment done in, in the next election on those districts, um, which could kind of, you know, even change uh, more this realignment that just happened. Mm-hmm. Well, just back to the state capitol, uh, the state is facing a big budget problem because of the COVID slowdown. Is there any sense yet how the governor and uh, the the Republican majority in the Senate, the DFL majority in the House might uh, address that budget problem when they come back and have to do it next year, Tim? Well, Republicans have uh, uh, put an early line in the sand uh, as they often do, saying no tax increases, they will they will oppose those. Uh, they want spending cuts, and they're talking about doing things like rede- redesigning state government, trying to make it uh, more efficient, more streamlined. Uh, Senator Gazelka and Governor Walls have talked often about uh, how they were able to uh, work together last last time to pass a compromise budget um we'll see how they do uh, this go because uh, you know they've been 
uh, they've been going at at each other over uh, COVID nineteen and and the whole emergency powers uh, situation mm-hmm. for months. And that's going to come up again, probably uh, in a week or so, Absolutely. in a special session. Uh, Brianna, what do you think? Yeah, uh, how are things? Sh- it's uh, how are th- be, Go ahead. Yeah, it's going to be really hard. I mean, you know, with um, Republicans, like, as Tim mentioned, holding a line on tax increases, you know, they do the state, you know, a reminder, the state does have a uh, reserve account um, and, and a, you know, a budget reserve that has more than $2 billion in it. Um, but not everybody wants to just drain that in one full sweep swoop to try to help balance however big this budget deficit could be um, in the next two years, which as of last projections was, you know, close to $5 billion. Uh, So that's one option. Um, There are other potential shifts they could do. You know, we have to look back to 2011 when, um, you know, it was the same situation, uh, you know, divided control between the governor's office and and the legislature. Republicans completely controlled the legislature at that time. But, you know, they did a lot of shifts um, to kind of handle this exact problem that they're potentially facing right now, which is, uh, you know, Republican majority in at least one chamber that doesn't want to raise taxes and Democrats um, in control of other places that don't want to deeply, deeply cut state budgets. So I think that that's the, the real crux of, of, the, of the situation that they're going to be facing again. Yeah, and we'll pay attention and we'll see what happens. Um, I, I don't want to leave without just uh, mentioning, of course, that uh, the week ended on a sad note uh, in the world of Minnesota politics with Jim Ramstead passing away. He's the Republican congressman for many years uh, from that uh, third uh, congressional district. And before that, uh, when I first met him, he was a state senator. So our uh, thoughts are certainly uh, with his family today. Uh, Brianna Biersbach, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Tim Pugmeyer, thank you as well. My pleasure, Mike. That's going to do it for Politics Friday for a while. Next week, Angela Davis will be back. Thanks for being with us these past couple of months as we've covered the campaign and this week as we covered the election. It's been a long one, and uh, we'll all look forward to the end and uh, look forward to getting some sleep. I have to thank our producer, Sarah Meyer. We also had a lot of help from Katie Moritz. Thanks so much for listening. Look for much more coverage, both on the radio and at mprnews.org. Have a great weekend. For now, that's Politics Friday. I'm Mike Mulcahy. You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. To add your voice to the conversation, you can call in at 651-227-6000 or tweet us at Angela Davis NPR. And if you missed us live, you'll find all of our shows by subscribing to this podcast. Thanks for listening.